Welcome to Spotlight On, a new series produced by Excel, where we examine the technology shaping our world through conversations with the people building it. Welcome to Spotlight On. I'm Dan Levine, and I'm here and excited to interview Alex Wang, the founder and CEO of Scale. Excited to be here, Dan. Thanks so much. Alex, can you tell us just a little bit about Scale so that people know what it is, what you do? Yeah. So at Scale, we power the data infrastructure for the entire AI industry. Yeah. Um, every major large language model is built on top of Scale's data engine. And then we also partner with enterprises and governments, particularly the U.S. government, in helping them implement and use this technology specifically on their data sets, their problems, their businesses, um, their unique challenges uh, to basically power the future of AI development. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So one of my favorite things about you is your origin story. Not that you're a comic book character, but uh, tell us a little bit about where you're from, why you're from there, and then get us to, you know, how you decided to work on scale. I, uh, I was born in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Uh, for those of you who have seen Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer's really taken it to the next level. I feel like now everyone knows Los Alamos. Everyone knows Los Alamos, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And why? Um, I uh, Both my parents were weapons physicists working yeah. at the Los Alamos National Lab. Yeah. My mom is one of the, uh, the, the country's experts in plasma physics and plasma fluid dynamics, yeah. um, very relevant for nuclear uh, nuclear weapons. And so I grew up in this, like, this hotbed where everybody was talking about science and technology all the time. Um, and... Uh, when I went to college, when I went to MIT, um, the this was right around when DeepMind came out with AlphaGo, um, Google came out with TensorFlow. It was like the start of when machine learning engineers were starting to get paid a lot more than regular engineers in the in the valley. Yep. And so I basically um, dedicated myself to to studying AI, machine learning. Um, and that point was it was quite primitive compared to what it was today. It was the very sort of beginning of deep learning and deep neural networks starting to take off. Um, and uh, basically in the course of, of, of being in school, you know, I built a few side projects. There was a, um, an algorithm that I tried to build that could uh, detect people's emotions based on their facial expression. Another one that, you know, I tried to build a camera inside my refrigerator that would tell me when my roommates were taking my food. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and realized pretty quickly that there's like this incredible feature of these models, which is that, um, they're just like sponges for data, basically. So you just, you take a model, you take the exact same model. In most cases, it's like the exact same algorithm. And you just um, upload it with different data. Yep. And it learns very sort of like surprising cognitive uh, traits from that data. So for example, in the facial recognition uh, case that I just talked about and the camera inside my fridge, it's the exact same algorithm and they just sucked up different data. Yeah. And basically realized that um, the the bottleneck for AI development and deployment wasn't it wasn't the intuitive things like it wasn't the algorithm it wasn't um, it wasn't like you know uh, something more technical it was actually just data yeah. and and availability of data our beginning thesis was that uh, you know there needed to be an infrastructure platform like an AWS or Stripe uh, to power the AI industry specifically focused on data and then in the past seven years since starting scale, I think we've been able to be at the forefront of every major development in AI since then. So, you know, we worked on all the major autonomous vehicle programs going from, you know, uh, General Motors to Toyota to many of the leading startups. Um, we worked with uh, worked with the U.S. government on the first major programs, AI programs of record, yep. um, and their first major deployments of artificial intelligence technology. Awesome. And then 
we worked uh, really closely with all the major labs in in large language models. You know, we worked with OpenAI since 2019. We're closely with many of the other labs like Meta, Microsoft, um, Character, totally. uh, and many others. And so it's been, um, you know, the the industry has progressed much faster than I could have even predicted over the course of the past, you know, uh, 10 years, roughly. Um, and it's been an incredibly wild ride. Very cool. I mean, one of the things that we don't, you know, I've always talked about that I think is so fundamental and, and you kind of alluded to it is this, this infrastructure aspect of it. Um, you know, t- what does it mean to you to be AI infrastructure, to be infrastructure on the data side? Like what specifically is the difference between being kind of uh, some random tool that people use and being an infrastructure company in the space? One of the key things that I think sets apart infrastructure is that you're, you're, you're deeply focused on primitives. Um, so, you know, one of the I think if you look at the history of AWS, I think one of the sort of like strokes of genius in AWS's history was they spent a lot of time just boiling it down to what are the like core APIs that are necessary for, you know, cloud computing broadly or just computing, let's say, uh, in a general sense, because they invented cloud computing. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and and they really boiled it down to the first two APIs were EC2, so the ability to have compute on demand, and S3, the ability to have storage on demand. Yep. Um and and so if you think about the AI paradigm, you know, these models um, or sort of everything that we see, whether it's ChatGPT or Claude or, you know, all these advanced models, they all boil down to the same base primitives. Um, those base ingredients are, you know, there's the uh, the compute. So the the um, in now basically like high end GPUs and accelerators that are able to run a lot of the the sort of training and inference at extremely high speed. Yep. Um uh, there's data, uh, which is what is the data that these models are, are training themselves on that are fundamentally um, fueling these models' de- uh, improvement and yep. teaching them what various concepts are. Um, there's talent. Uh, you know, this is obviously the missing ingredient in a lot of technology is very, very high-end talent, and AI talent is certainly very scarce. Um, and then there's the algorithms, and the, and the algorithms actually have become you know, the transformers open source, all, most of the, most of the algorithmic development is, is broadly open sourced and sort of broadly accessible. So, um, so then you look at these primitives, you know, high end compute and data, and you think about what primitives will continue scaling as the industry scales. Right. And that I think is the, that's the heart of what a great infrastructure opportunity is. It's something yeah. where a it's, it's a base primitive. So there's like, there's no way around it. You know, there's no way of, you can't, build AI without data, right. fundamentally. And then it's something that um, has to scale exponentially as the entire field develops. So yeah. in particular, um, you know, the entire AI industry has is governed by what are called the scaling laws, which were, you know, they were discovered in 2019, 2018, 2019 by OpenAI. Um, but the basic observation is, as you make models way bigger, they get way better. More technically, you know, every... 10x increase in model size, so every exponential increase in model size creates a um, predictable increase in performance of the models. Yeah. So we're what, one of the things we see we've seen is so GPT two was a um, two billion dollar or sorry two billion parameter model. Yep. Um, you know GPT four uh, based on most of the reports is something close to uh, one and a half to two trillion sparse model. Um, almost a thousand times. Yeah, almost yep. a thousand times. And most companies are on the record for seeking, you know, another roughly 100 times, certainly in terms of the amount of compute that they want to throw at these models. And so um, we're just in, the, in, this, in this very incredible 
you know, Renaissance period, you're very rarely in the midst of a, you know, 100,000 X scale up of anything in humanity. Maybe like RNA vaccines are like the, you know, humanity's last example, but it's just, we're in the midst of this incredible um, scaling of models. And I think that's, that's governing a lot of the performance we're seeing. You know, if you, if you went back, you know, when we were working with um, OpenAI on GPT-2, the models could sort of every once in a while spit out a word where you're like, oh, that's cool. Um, (laughs) It was sort of like very, very primitive. And then now, you know, talking to GPT-4, it's like, you know, I have a friend who mentioned that they use GPT-4 as an executive coach. Sure. You know, they just they just talk to it at night and it like teaches him how to think about things. It's it's yeah. pretty incredible. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, one of the things I always think about because, you know, I've been talking with a lot of folks recently and they've been asking me foolishly for my thoughts on that. I have no idea what's going on. But I come back to this, this kind of framing that you used where you have the core primitives are basically this talent stuff. And everyone has a sense. Everyone knows that AI talent is extremely expensive uh, and it's worth it. Uh, and then you have... Everyone knows there's a shortage of GPUs and you can look at NVIDIA and see, you know, just how well that business has gone. I think their data center business grew 100 percent quarter over quarter. And yet maybe the biggest, the best kept secret to the broader world might be the value of data. Now, of course, if you ask people at all these companies who are building these models, they would all tell you it's extremely valuable. Our usage is scaled up. Our cost structure is scaled up and scale is our favorite vendor. But the broader world maybe hasn't quite figured it out yet. So it's one of my favorite, um, like best kept secrets of Silicon Valley, which is uh, which is great. So I think the word's getting out. Um, so you were once a young 19 year old founder in the AI space, uh, and you're a whole 25, 26, 26, 26. You're all of 26 now. I mean, you're basically a seasoned veteran. Um, but there are more and more founders every day starting AI companies uh, right now, and you've been through that. What's some advice you would give them about starting a company? in the space. Yeah. So in general, my, um, one of my observations from studying, you know, successful companies is that most of the time, um, you start companies long, you know, in an area or in a trend long before they become cool. And the thing that allows you to actually win is that by the time the thing becomes cool or interesting, you've had this like head running head start to be able to take advantage of the opportunity. Yep. Um, so that might cause founders to be slightly dissuaded from starting <laughs> AI companies today. Another way to think about this is like, you know, for founders starting AI companies today, there's just like an incredible amount of competition. You know, yeah. I think um, there was a, uh, um, a f- few friends of mine were working on an idea for um, AI powered sales. Yeah. And there are probably literally 50, if not more companies working yeah. on AI powered sales. Right. So, um, and in that kind of environment, even, you know, even if you're an incredibly good product person, even if you're an incredibly good um, uh, engineer, you're still probably only going to build something that's like marginally better than yeah. your competition. And so it's just really, it's really difficult to thrive in those kinds of environments. I mean, um, you know, uh, in Zero to One, Peter Thiel writes about this concept, which is that you know, the best, the best capitalists actually um, uh, skate away from competition. Right. Um, so, I mean, I have two minds about this too. I think on the other hand, AI is 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 uh, probably the most important technological advancement of our time. Yeah. You know, I think we'll look back on this in a few decades and realize that AI was the greatest economic engine um, for for sort of revitalizing growth of the developed world. And so I certainly think there's a lot of opportunity. So, you know, I'd probably boil down to, you know, I would pick, I would pick areas uh, which are not very popular, yep. um, but which AI can have have a large impact. 
And the other thing I would I would I would caution for for folks in building these companies is don't try to start something that's too far ahead of where the capability of the technology is. Yeah. So I think a lot of people there's a lot of hype in the industry. Um, you know, I think in many cases for good reason the technology is, is very impressive, uh, but the models are still not good at various things. You know, they still hallucinate. Um, they're still not great at reasoning. Right. Um, tool use doesn't work particularly well. And so I wouldn't start a company uh, assuming that these problems will go away. They might go away, but that's a lot to, to risk your entire company on. Yeah. It's almost it's almost interesting. Like one of the things we talk about internally is there were people at various points who started internet companies or you started like a mobile company. But the reality is you had to start a particular company that happened to, to be mobile or happened to be about the internet. And of course, the internet really changes things. So you're thoughtful about it. But it's still at the end of the day, what, what's the actual company do? What are you excited about? What are you passionate about? And right now there's probably a glut of people who are starting AI companies um, and they maybe haven't been as thoughtful about uh, what they do. And by the way, of course, the second thing you would tell them is you, you need a lot of data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like, you know, it's expensive, the talent, the GPUs, and of course you're getting a lot of data. How do you think about, I'm curious, you know, one of my favorite things about you is when you started at 19, you were obviously very deep into the AI space, having been at MIT, having thought about it a lot. But, you know, people have been studying and researching AI for decades, since before you were born. Um, and yet, I, at least I like to think it was almost a benefit to you that you had, call it the right combination of experience, thoughtfulness, passion, and some of the inexperience. You hadn't learned some of the wrong lessons that people learned from 20 years ago. So when a new technology comes along, uh, you can back. I think this is true of people at OpenAI as well. Um, you know, I think Ilya was one of the first people to jump on Transformers and say, wow, this is totally different. And obviously he had deep expertise in the space, but probably helped that he hadn't been doing it for 30 years. Um, so he could take a fresh view and appreciate something new. What, what are some of the things that you think founders should not learn from the last decade or so of AI, the last five years of AI? What are things where you, you think there's opportunities to be a little naive, a little, um, a little silly, maybe? Yeah, in general, I, I believe there's a huge premium to naivete. Um, you know, there's, uh, you look at the fields, like you look at AI, you look at a lot of Elon's companies, um, you know, there's there's just this like incredible track record, which is, you know, uh, approaching industries with a totally blank slate and and no, with, without a fine-grained understanding of what makes things hard is actually right. part of what allows you to accomplish things that, you know, other companies or other efforts are sort of in ruts um, yeah. and are and are therefore unable to accomplish. And I think, you know, OpenAI is a great example of that. I think the the things that I would probably encourage, um, you know, founders be be more open open minded about is is probably the um, uh, thinking about the business case or, or or like not being so dogmatic about the the sort of like exact you know HBS business right. case style framework of thinking about the business you know I think I think we talked about this a lot in the early days of scale which is that um, you know when we originally when um, I think one of the funding rounds when we were pitching scale you know we got a lot of no's um, we talked to a lot of investors and a lot of them were just like yeah we just don't see this being that important or we just don't see it being that big or you know the TAM's a little small and I think you made a great point which is like yeah, the TAM was small of every important company when they were getting started, basically. Yeah. Uh, and the whole point is that it's growing super fast. So, um, uh, so you know, you kind of just got to ignore them. And I remember being quite discouraged at the time, but I think, you know, you helped encourage me in the, in the, in the moment. And I think it's true. You know, in this yeah. case, um, the, the reason that an investor should have invested in scales because you believe that 
the AI industry was going to fundamentally grow many, many, many fold, which is obviously playing out today. But, you know, you had to have that conviction early on. I think as a founder, you need to have similar kinds of convictions. Um, you know, the good, another good example of this is um, I, like many others, witnessed the, the sort of um, the growth and explosion of MidJourney mm-hmm. as a platform. Yep. You know, I think what I remember when MidJourney first came out, you know, it seemed like, oh, this is just like super weird. And, yeah. you know, I like it, this doesn't seem like a business and, you know, I don't know, who knows what's going on here. And then fast forward to now, it's like a bigger business than most SaaS businesses, yeah. um, dramatically bigger. Uh, and uh, and they've like, they it's like still one of the strangest user experiences, yeah. I would say. It's a great example of this, by the way, because this is actually my, one of my case, uh, um, case examples where people come to me and they ask like, I mean, what if, if only mid-journey, the first thing people say is, if only mid-journey had its own UI, how much bigger could it be? And I'm always like, I mean, maybe, but have you ever built a business that's as big as mid-journey? Because I, I feel like the UI is working pretty well for them, and I think they seem pretty thoughtful about it. Uh, but it's like one of my favorite, um, incidentally shock and awe things to say to people. I think a lot of people come in, chest puffed out, and go, wow, but what if we built a great mobile app UI for mid-journey? And I'm always like, I don't know that you're in a good position to give feedback to Midjourney. I admire like the gall of a extremely like I don't know, extremely proud, extremely um, like a lot of bravado people who are like I could do it better, and I'm like, there's no evidence to suggest that you could do it better, and I think it's going quite well. Um, yeah, yeah there are my case example of that. Recently. Totally. I mean, I think another way to think about this is like I think that the the rules are being totally rewritten right now yeah. because of these models. I think no sane person. Um, uh, no sane, like business school graduate would advise OpenAI to have spent hundreds of millions of uh, its like billion dollars or whatnot on training GPT four speculatively without an understanding of what the right. business plan was going to be. So um, it's just the 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 rules of physics of of AI businesses are different. One of my favorite like isms of thoughts about certain companies is you have to you have to accept a level of being a little irrational. You know, I tell founders or prospective founders, you know, how, how do I pick an idea? I'm like, it's going to be something you're like irrationally excited about, which for very smart, hardworking, thoughtful people is almost the worst thing you can tell many of them. They're like, what do you mean be irrationally excited? Shouldn't I be rash? And I'm like, well, it's just hard to know how well it's going to go. And there's not great examples. You know, I, um, I had the, the pleasure of working at Dropbox and I think it kind of picks up on a couple of the trends that you mentioned, which is the first is. I don't think Dropbox could have necessarily existed without a technology like S3, which had just gotten launched. And a lot of AWS was built on the back of startups who maybe of a prior era or big companies would have said, I'm not going to use this cloud thing. Um, but Drew didn't give it a second thought. He was like, well, this is the logical choice. Like, sure, I should I should just use S3. It's exactly what I need. And that was true for, you know, Instagram, Pinterest, et cetera, and a few other folks. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, Dropbox was always like a product for for people, for customers, for users, how they thought about it. But everyone always tried to bucket the company as kind of one of these like legacy enterprise storage companies or something like that. We just never thought that way as a business, at least not in the first decade. Um, and it always baffled me. But of course, Dropbox is a great company with a great product and incredible talent, uh, including some wonderful folks at scale. And so it, it's just such a good example. And this is true of pretty much every business I can think of, um, which is a just it's one of my favorite things about Silicon Valley. And I think it's why there's so many younger founders so many founders who they're kind of like passionate, curious, interesting people with, with like diverse hobbies and passions. So it's, it's one of my favorite parts. Um, okay. This is all great. Uh, one of my favorite things when I get to talk to you, and I think it's one of the great privileges of being an investor in companies is 
you get to invest in these great companies when they're really early and nobody knows about them and these great people before people know about them. Um, and even now, as I alluded to earlier, scales a little bit of like a, a secret to a certain extent. I mean, I, I don't think people fully appreciate the impact it has in the category and on the world. Um, and of course, you know, you run the company uh, and you're something of, you know, like a futurist in this space, right? You're somebody who spends a lot of your time thinking about AI. You get to see companies and what they're building from the very beginning using scale. Um, what are some of your favorite, you know, predictions for the future of AI for how the world's going to evolve um, that you that you like to talk about over drinks or dinner with friends? Yeah, I think we're we're in a period of of quite high uncertainty um, in a number of dimensions, and I think there's sort of like you could debate about. You know, I often debate with other people in AI around like what the what the outcome of some of these um, fronts of 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 uncertainty look like. You know, just to say a few, I think in terms of the evolution of model capability. Um, so, how are the models going to get better? Um, I think there's some things that are pretty clear. Like, it, I think it's very clear that um, multimodality is going to continue improving. Yep. So, models are going to get better at understanding images. They're going to get better at creating images. They're going to be better at um, you know the audio stuff is going to get better. And then maybe perhaps most uh, impactfully, I think video video models are going to keep improving pretty dramatically over time as well. So, um, you know, we're going to continue seeing not just text, but basically all the, the data formats that we as humans create and consume are going to be very convincingly generated by, by AI systems. And, and just to dive in on that, because you mentioned video, and it's something that I think about a lot as well. I, I always think to myself, you know, a lot of people have this view of how big the Internet is, the general speaking Internet, and it's quite large. Um, but when you think about like the corpus of data that YouTube has or TikTok or aspects of Facebook and Instagram have, it's really massive. Uh, so to the extent that you can understand video, uh, you really grow the internet by orders of magnitude. I mean, there was always these fun like legacy studies of, you know, when Cisco and it still is, but they power all the networking and switches for the internet and they would talk about video. And that's why they did flip camera. And that's where they got into the video conferencing business. Cause they're like, this is mo most of the internet. <laughs> His video, or people like think Netflix and YouTube take up a huge amount of engagement. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted to double click, which is I think you know again this is a good example of a thing that you know you and I spend a lot of time thinking about, but I think people don't quite realize how large video is, how much information is there, how much language, how much content understanding is in video, and to the extent that some of these companies can unlock that video content, it will be a meaningful driver. Not only is it a meaningful area for companies to target, but it's also a meaningful area to drive the future of how these models can perform and get better. Totally, yeah. And I think I think the one way to think about multimodality is that, um, you know, you're going to, these models basically are going to be able to um, see and understand all the things that we as humans see and right. understand. And so you're going to get to worlds where you have like a, you know, and this is something that is like not possible today, but like I think a lot of us wish that we always had a friend looking over our shoulder in all of our, you know, social situations, any technical situations, you wish you have a mechanic you can call whenever you have yeah. a, uh, you know, a tricky issue. And that's going to be, I think, very feasible with the technology, sort of having like a, an AI, you know, assistant yeah. that, that's always, um, always present and can look at basically anything that you see. So I think, I think that's one exciting direction. Um, the, the other exciting direction I think is going to, um, will be really key is, is models, um, going deeper and deeper into proprietary data sets. Mm -hmm. So today, most of the models are trained off of predominantly internet data. Yeah. Um, and the internet is, you know, it seems like a lot of data, but most of the data, 99.99% of the data out there is actually private and proprietary. Yeah. You know, one simple way to think about this is like, of 
you know, the photos that you take on your phone, how many end up on the public internet? Um, for me, at least it's like, you know, 0.001% or something crazy. So, um, so because of that, I think that the, um, there's going to be a huge amount of model improvement from enterprises, governments, and, and, and large organizations in general taking these models and then, um, you know, whether it's training them or fine-tuning them or using RAG, or re, uh, retrieval augmented generation, somehow intermingling them with your, with your own corpus of data to create sort of AI systems that are uniquely capable, uniquely customized, and uniquely yours. Yeah. Um, you know, a third, a third trend that I think uh, the, the jury's still out on is what the misuse of models is going to look like. Yep. Um, in particular, you know, there's, uh, there's like this UK AI summit that's going to happen next week um, uh, focused on frontier risks. So there's like different, you know, there's different threads on this. There's people who are worried about AI, you know, the, the um, classic AI doom argument, which is, you know, AI takes over and, and is a humanity level risk. Right. Um, there's the, there's the other thread, which I subscribe to more, which is that um, AI will be used by bad people to do bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like real risks around, you know, bioweaponry and right. biosecurity. Um, there's real risks around, uh, you know, use in cybersecurity and cyber attacks. And then maybe the last thread that is interesting or, or I think, again, the jury is still out on is um, what is sort of like the global story of AI, so to speak. So, or, you know, the lot of, the, you know, OpenAI is an American company. Yeah. Um, Google's an American company. Um, many of the leading companies today are, are American companies. Uh, you know, DeepMind is maybe the, the one notable exception in London. And, um, and so, so far, it's been a predominantly um, American and certainly Anglophone um, yeah. technology. And I think with ChatGPT, it spurred this, um, it was like the firing gun of a race. You know, yeah. maybe something like the modern space race in which, you know, now you see some of the highest performing open source models are coming out of Europe. Yep. Um, Mistral, yeah. uh, French company, created some of the, some of the best open source models. Um, the, the UAE and Saudi um, have been uh, Saudi Arabia have been incredibly aggressive uh, for on AI. You know they've they've both announced large super con- supercomputing clusters. Yep. Um, the UAE has trained multiple models at this point, yep. multiple LLMs, um, including some of the largest Arabic LLMs. Um, China is obviously extremely aggressive yep. uh, when uh, you know they've bought uh, something like five billion dollars worth of high end GPUs from Nvidia. Yep. Um, so the there's there's clearly this global proliferation and global um, sort of race element where many many countries are viewing this as a a key priority for them as as countries. Yeah. Um, and I don't know exactly where that how that falls long term. Yeah. Um, okay. So let me just recap this. And then I might dig on some of these. So so one multimodal, which. I think it's a super interesting area. I think it'll unlock massive data sets. It'll bring more use cases online. Um, so multimodal is a big one. Enterprise with proprietary data sets is a really good one. I want to double click on that. Um, the sovereign side of things. Uh, so the different geopolitical risks. And then, of course, the kind of the offense versus defense, good for the world, bad for the world piece. Um, I'm curious, you know, a lot of people talk about enterprise AI, and it's obviously a huge opportunity. What is kind of the canonical example you use when you're, you know, when you're trying to explain it to, I would, I shouldn't say your parents because your parents are, are overqualified. If you were trying to explain it to my parents, um, uh, what is like the use case that you would use to kind of really crystallize things for somebody in enterprise AI? You know, you have to go, ultimately you have to go sector by sector, but I think one way to think about it from a top-down perspective is that, um, you know, of the $27 trillion of, of US GDP, 
15 trillion of that is in services. Yeah. The biggest chunks. So A, I think one of the, the opportunities for AI, broadly speaking, is that, you know, you have the ability to now um, use technology to transform this $16 trillion of, yeah. of US GDP, the vast majority of US GDP. And if you if you look in those buckets or you peek under the covers, you know, the biggest bucket is um, healthcare and the second yep. biggest is financial services. Yep. So going to healthcare for a second, it's very um, reactive. Yep. You know, you have an incident, you have symptoms, and then you go into the doctor uh, and, you know, once in every however many times, it ends up being something extremely severe that uh, ends up being a huge risk to health yep. um, and and ex- incredibly expensive. And um, the, fundamentally, this paradigm is just wrong. And, and the reason that we have to be so reactive in the healthcare system is ultimately because of a shortage of medical talent. Right. Um, you know, if we, if there were, you know, 10 times as many doctors, then hypothetically you could be, you know, doctors could be proactively checking in on you um, very, very frequently. Right. And therefore preventing a huge amount of um, the, the very like tail risks and the, the, the sort of like late stage risks. That's right. And so I think one vision of how AI changes, you know, the world is AI-based healthcare, which is, um, you know, you will have a, a healthcare AI buddy that's yeah. constantly monitoring everything about you, um, and through that process, ensuring that you remain healthy. And if there's anything that might cause you to be unhealthy, catching that very, very early. Yeah. And, and it's a good example, I think, in healthcare where a, a lot of times in AI, you need a couple different things. We've always talked about this. You need the talent in the category. You need the infrastructure, the GPUs, data centers, and you need the data. And in healthcare, a good example of this is, I think more healthcare data is becoming accessible. You know, even things like the Apple Watch that I'm wearing right now, uh, continuous glucose monitoring, scan prices are coming down, and it forms this like beautiful virtuous cycle where the cost to acquire data goes lower. But historically, people would have said, well, what, what use is more data? We don't have the people who can make sense of that data in a thoughtful way. But that's obviously a huge opportunity for the AI space to say, we can take in that data, we can process it, we can understand it. Um, and maybe it starts out as an early warning, and then over time it gets more and more to give give doctors in the medical establishment dramatically more leverage. There is a huge question around what the impacts on on labor are going to yeah. be, and um, and you know my I think one of the it's like one of the first technologies that puts a lot of pressure on knowledge labor. Yeah, I think what that means is you know as as if you are in one of these sectors, how do you go from being the computer? I how do you go from being the yeah. the person doing a lot of the the sort of computation, so to speak, to being uh, a user of computers. Sure. So how do you utilize the AI systems to be dramatically more effective yeah. and sort of orchestrate uh, a number of AI systems uh, behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, and I, I totally agree, it's a super interesting thing. I, I for, as you know, and you, you've had the displeasure of knowing me for seven years now, I'm just very optimistic generally. Um, and my optimism is, you know, it's so hard to predict what will happen. I mean, I think, I'll, I'll go on a tangent and then come back, which is, it's incredible to me, you know, I think five years ago, you would have heard a lot about the decline of the American technology sector and things like that. And there were a lot of people who would say, you know, I thought we would get this by the 2020s and we don't have it yet. Um, but it goes to show how hard it is to predict things. I, I probably agree with you. I think AI optimistically could be a complete and utter game changer for the world. And I think it'll affect things in such different ways. And it all came about because, you know, an unlikely-ish group of people from places like Stripe and an investor uh, got together with the scientists from Google and said, we're going to, we're going to work on this open AI thing is like, it even started out as kind of like a nonprofit and, you know, it's become more of a combination of nonprofit and company, but it, it's a very unlikely beginning. I think it's hard to say, we're going to draw this, uh, draw this up. And then it was going all right. And they were producing some amazing stuff, but all of a sudden 
they launched like a consumer facing chat product. And that was not only successful, it's like the most successful consumer subscription product ever <laughs> in that short of time. I just, I like can't fathom anyone could have predicted it. And so I think that's one of the great things about, in this case, I'll get a little bit nationalist and said, it's one of the great things about America is like, we've built a, a, a culture, particularly in Silicon Valley, where like, we don't have the hubris of how it will work or what will make it happen. We kind of, you know, give freedom to let a bunch of flowers bloom. So similarly with labor, you know, one of my favorite things about humanity is I never predict how people will will spend their money. One of my favorite anecdotes or stories that you've probably heard, because I don't have many of them, so I repeat them over and over again, is when Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, the core use case he envisioned was uh, recording office memos. The first recording of sound, he thought, office memos. And the reason was, to him, most, the best music was in a symphony hall. And these buildings had been constructed for their acoustics, and it was high end and any other music wasn't worth listening to. That was Thomas Edison, the inventor. That was his view. Um, the music industry didn't exist the way it does now. Uh, you know, and oh, oh, not that much more than a hundred years later, uh, you know, Taylor Swift is keeping the global economy afloat. Um, so you, you can never tell it. So I, I'm, I'm very eager to see what will happen. I tend to be optimistic about it. I think people will be freed up to pursue creative ideas and think interesting things. And, um, and I think AIs will think interesting things and come up with creative ideas as well. And I think it'll be, uh, it'll just be an awesome, an awesome time to live. What are you, what are your Halloween party plans? Uh, I think the best way to have a party, uh, my partner and I have been, have been, uh, really all about this recently is, um, is, uh, this new thing called algo raving. Okay. Tell yeah. Tell us all about algo raving. There's coding languages that allow you to generatively create music. Yeah. So just in the same way that, or a similar way that you might write sheet music, instead you can basically control um, a lot of the waveform using code. Awesome. Um, and uh, and so there's this thing called live coding where somebody will basically, um, in the course of playing their set or, or performing, they will, you know, their, their, their terminal will be projected yep. onto, a, you know, up on a screen and they will uh, live code, they will code, uh, uh, using um, using this generative language and create new music on the fly by editing uh, by editing their editor um, and at the same time usually they also have a shader up so their their terminals transparent and behind it they have a um, like a, a they have a visualization that's yep. also controlled by generative code so they also will sort of like alternate between editing the the music code and editing the uh, the shader code that's um, awesome. and so it's uh, yeah, it's the most, I think for, you know, a, uh, a coding audience, it's the best way to experience music. I think it's very cool. I look forward to 20 years from now, the next Taylor Swift era is being algorithmic. And then, and then last question on this thread, what's your costume going to be for Halloween? I, I have fond memories, as I often remind you, of in, uh, in October of 2016, you were a carrot. Uh, you were an exceptional carrot. Uh, it was very orange, green, high quality carrot. What's the plan? Or what will you have been in 2023 when people watch this? I pushed my partner a lot this year to do a uh, a couple's costume. So um, my partner will be an acorn. Mm. Um, you know that was a that was the fixed point. Uh, there was sort of a lot of insisting uh, on the. You acorn. started from acorn. Started from acorn. Got it. Okay. And then uh, and so therefore I will be a squirrel. You you could have gone you could have gone like a changing color leaf a, a different aspect of the tree. We were, what does it say about you that they went with the thing that 
eats the acorn. <laughs> you know, stows it away for winter, and then <laughs> tree was tree was tree was considered. Tree was considered. Um, leaf leaf did not make the consideration set. You know, there was also there's just the constraint of there's a supply chain constraint uh, yeah. around what is the universe of of costumes that get preemptively made. By the way, this did really cause me to um, sort of like look into and understand the the uh, the costume industry. Um, and the Halloween costume <laughs> economic opportunity. And it's wild. There's a, you know, in many cases, the fastest way to get a costume online yeah. is through HalloweenCostumes.com. Really? Yeah. They have they have next day delivery uh, where, you know, Amazon doesn't in most cases. I had no idea. And, you know, you think about this problem behind the scenes. You know, we run a, I run a very operational company, so we think a lot about the operations of it. And it must be crazy. You're basically, you know, the whole year... You have probably like very mediocre demand. And then the month of October, particularly the last week of yeah. October, uh, you just have demand blow through the roof. Yeah. Uh, and you have you have to fulfill all these orders. You and and your selling prop or your value prop yeah. is that you can deliver extremely quickly. Yeah. So, you know, I can't imagine what it looks like, but I have to like it the the staff and and real estate uh sort of uh footprint for this company must just skyrocket in October and then they shutter all of it. Everyone always hears about how many people Amazon's hiring for the holidays, but what is it? Halloweencostume.com? I would love to see the P&L. You would love to see the P&L of the October hit. Well, because this is the story behind like what Spirit Halloween, right? The stores that pop up everywhere and yeah, they just show up in like abandoned warehouses that the rest of the year are nothing and then they're all of a sudden there. Okay, so what you're telling me, let's just sum up, let's sum up the episode. If you're a young founder out there, maybe not AI, Halloween costume Halloween e-commerce. I think there's a lot of opportunity. I awesome. think in any case where you have spiky demand, you know, there's opportunity to uh, to take advantage of that. Very cool. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on Spotlight On. Uh, and uh, I'm sure I'll see you around soon. Yeah. Thank cool. you, Dan. The next episode of Spotlight On AI features John Locke, partner at Excel, and Jack Krofcheck, a senior director of product at Google, most recently focused on BARD. Humans with AI have the ability to produce more creative ideas. It's not the AI producing the idea. It's the human that's trying to find the right words to make a pitch, refine a concept, explore an avenue of solving a problem that they hadn't considered before. 